Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the third program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is asking this question. If small states rule, why are they so angry? We did our February show on small state bias in the federal government. For March, we're asking this follow-up question. Does small state bias equate to overrepresentation of rural interests in government? Does it translate to politics that help rural areas thrive? If rural areas are thriving, why are they so angry? If they're not thriving, why not? They hold the levers of power. Does rural resentment account for minority rule at the federal level? Senators from our small states hold outsized sway in government to the point where they can block measures that the majority of Americans really want. How are they using that power and what does it mean for Maine? This show was pre-recorded on March 14th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put democracy forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host this afternoon, and let me introduce our guests. Amy Freed has been with us a couple times before. Amy is the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. She co-authored the book, At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. Welcome, Amy. Delighted to have you back. It's great to be here, Anne. And Michael Podhortzer. Mike is chairman of the board of the Analyst Institute and assistant to the president for strategic research at the AFL-CIO. Welcome, Mike. Hello. So pleased to have you. So let's get started. Amy, I want to put it to you first. Kathy Kramer from my home state of Wisconsin wrote the influential book, The Politics of Resentment, in 2016, looking at how rural attitudes led to an enduring Republican takeover in Wisconsin. How much does Wisconsin have in common with attitudes in other rural areas of the country, or with Maine, for that matter? Well, uh, first of all, I just want to Uh, say that this is really an excellent book, and it's an extremely readable book. So if anyone wants to take it out of their local library, they should go ahead and do it. It's filled with all of these uh, interviews and just comments from a lot of of people who Professor Kramer talked to in, in Wisconsin. And one of the things that she ended up finding out uh, about people in these rural areas is just, yeah, this sense of resentment that they had towards people in urban areas, thinking that they had too much cultural power, too much economic power, and that often there were outsiders. They saw them as outsiders who would come into their areas and try to change things as they sort of bought up property, to say vacation properties or properties that they thought they would live in year round and then just started complaining that there weren't the restaurants and other cultural sorts of things that they like to have around them. Um, and, and some of what they felt, obviously you can't challenge it's real to them. Uh, but you know, they were also wrong about, uh, some of the economic things they thought that they got, they were paying more in to the state while getting less out. And that's, you know, actually the opposite. It's the urban areas that tend to send more funding to the states. But to your question, 
I'd say that it, there's some other research on, you know, rural attitudes. And, and I think there are a lot of rural areas that have a lot in common. And every time I've talked, to, I've had students read this book in a class, and a lot of them are people from Maine, some from rural Maine, they think it has a lot of applicability to Maine. Uh, so I'll take them as, as uh, local informants <laughs> to, who, who understand the state well, having grown up in, in these areas. And, and, you know, they really see that it has a, a, a lot of applicability. So, Mike, what in your mind is the source of the grievance in, in resentment politics? Why do people feel that way? Well, I think that from, you know, not just in the United States, but pretty much throughout the Western world going back for a very long time, there's always been a, a distinctive rural and urban culture. And, uh, you know, that the rural cultures tend to be more conservative, um, to be less committed to commerce and to sort of diversity and that sort of thing. And so there's nothing really unusual about the dynamic that's described in Kathy Kramer's book. It really it's always been that way. And in uh, many ways, it is kind of in some ways inevitable in the sense that cities are almost definitionally places that people who began rural life decided to move to and to create a different kind of way of life. And so the people who are in cities are to a great extent self-selecting and in a way so are people in rural areas who are deciding to stay there. The fact that um, there are very different cultures and attitudes is not new. It's not unusual. What is relatively new is that the those differences have become really weaponized politically. And in many states, the basically you have sort of ethno-nationalist entrepreneurs who stoke those resentments um, in order to you know get power. There are a few things that about how the cultural differences between rural and urban um, has changed in the United States in terms of how it plays out in politics that most people are, re- including sort of in, in, inferentially, even Kathy Kramer's book, which is that the political difference, the partisan difference between urban and rural has only recently exploded. The urban-rural gap in the 2016 and 2020 elections was about 75 points, just like just ridiculous. But in the middle of the 2010s, before it, it was in the 50s. And before that, it was under 30. And we see in the 21st century is an acceleration of that gap. And I think a lot of it has to do with the policies of the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations, which really um, directed prosperity away from rural areas. Um, The other piece of it that is not where Wisconsin is an example of one of three types of things going on in the United States is a state where the balance of power between urban and rural, between Madison, Milwaukee on the one hand and the rest of the state on the other, is virtually like on a knife's edge. 
And when the political powers that balanced it really becomes weaponized and people sort of dig in, right? The other two sets of states, the ones that people think of as blue, in fact, Biden almost won rural blue America. It was only lost by about four points, which should like blow people's minds, right? Given what you think about rural voters. While on the other hand, in red states, he lost like by a near, you know, an overwhelming landslide. So those are the sort of three ways this is playing out right now in the United States. I, I want to follow up on all of those. So, so interesting. And I mean, it almost sounds like some of it is just a sense of grief and loss, like modernity is coming, globalization is coming, change is coming. You can't hold on to your way of life anymore. And in a global communication environment, you can't really escape knowing that. Is that part of it, Amy? Well, uh, to follow up on on, on Mike's point about um, the economy and you know what's happened to rural America. Before I lived in Maine, I lived in central New York, and that was an area where there was a lot of small-scale manufacturing, some not even that small-scale. And that just got, you know, a lot of that had already been shut down, moved first to the south, then to overseas textile, for example, um, leather works. Um, you know, when when I even when I first moved to that area, but by the time I left, even more of it had shut down. So yeah, I mean that you know, then what are the jobs that are left for people in that area? And in Maine, you can just travel up to northern Penobscot County, go to Millinocket, East Millinocket, where the paper mills are all gone, and they're trying to revive those now, but not not those mills, those particular paper mills, but they're trying to revive those areas now. Some with manufacturing, some with other sorts of activities, recreation, etc. But you know, it's very hard, and and. What, what happens is a kind of emptying out of population, too, where a lot of people decide, well, I can't earn a living here. So, you know, they move to they move to other parts of the state or they move to other states. Uh, and and that's very hard for those who are who haven't left. Uh, you know, what what are they going to do then? Yeah. You know, the economic changes and what Mike referred to as directed prosperity has maybe been an unintended consequence of policies that have left economic devastation behind? Is that what you mean, Mike? Well, I think that so th this happened in stages, right? Then the first stage in the uh, when Reagan came in in 1980 and Volcker raised uh, interest rates through the ceiling, what the America, the kind of manufacturing that Amy was just talking about, was at uh, crossroads, right? Because uh, in the 70s, you started to have foreign competition on a lot of American manufacturing goods. And at exactly the moment that those companies and the places you're talking about had to decide whether to invest um, and try to catch up and compete or not, like there was impossible to borrow capital because interest rates were so high. And so you had sort of a first hollowing out of that area. And then you get to the 90s and Clinton and his um, trade policies, which made it even more difficult to compete for manufacturing in those areas. But even then, the, the it had not become as politicized as it is now. 
and the grievance were grievances were not as um volatile. And then after the Great Recession, it sort of hit a tipping point because the because the Congress was deadlocked in how to stimulate the economy, the country got out of it through Federal Reserve quantitative easing. And almost all of that just went to assets and um, sort of the tech and uh, finance and but no money to invest. And by 2016, employment had recovered in every area of the country except rural America. So it's just one body blow after another. And um, if your readers, if your listeners haven't, uh, they should look at the New York Times magazine where Paul Ryan from Kathy Kramer's Wisconsin talks about how, um, as a, you know, he's obviously a big conservative Republican, um, the reason the four auto plants in his district are uh, no longer there because of those policies that he helped put through. And I mean, we've heard before that um, the Tea Party movement sort of grew out of the um, reaction to the 2008 um, financial collapse. And I've also heard it said that the entry of China into the World Trade Organization in 2000 was a pretty big shift in the way manufacturing was was done around the world. Amy, talk talk about if you can some of these economic developments and how they've actually left a devastation behind. We've covered some of this already, you know, for sure. Uh, a lot of you know rural areas, the the loss of manufacturing has has really been a problem. But you know, I'd go back to a point that you know I've made many times, and Michael so kind of referred to which is the stoking of this by politicians in certain ways. And I'd say in really like it's happened over many years, but we can really see a uh, intensification of it, the kind of social issues with, you know, issues around trans kids and books and libraries and, you know, just all of these issues to do with cultural or, or social issues that I think are, are really being used now that, that are drawing a, you know, a distinction between the values, not only of urban areas, but suburban areas too, a lot of times, and rural areas. And rural areas do tend to have more people who are certain religions and they, you know, they practice their religions a lot. There's high levels of what, what social scientists call religiosity going going to church a lot. I mean, I think one reason why some of this has hit a slightly different way in Maine than in, than in other states is that Maine is a very secular state. It's one of the most secular states in the country. And New England as a region is highly secular. You know, there certainly have been urban rural splits in, in Maine, which you can see in certain in certain votes. But I don't think it's it's had as big an impact as in some places because of the the lower levels of church attendance and religiosity and also a very strong kind of libertarian New England bent, which, you know, really the region is, is different in, in some ways than than uh, some other places. Although Pacific Northwest is also 
doesn't have that libertarianism, maybe, but it does have slow religiosity, just just like Maine. Mm-hmm. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is if small states rule, why are they so angry? Our guests this afternoon are Michael Podhorzer, chairman of the board of the Analyst Institute and assistant to the president for strategic research at the AFL-CIO, and Amy Freed, the John Mitchell Nickerson professor of political science at the University of Maine. This program was pre-recorded on March 14th. No listener calls are being taken this afternoon. We're sort of talking about how directed prosperity, as you called it, Michael, and economic devastation. But that's not what people are talking about. I mean, the re- resentments are playing out on all these social value issues. Why do you think that is, Mike? Yeah, there's a way in which those play on the idea that the people, urban people, Democrats, whatever, are, are others. They're not like you. And that's always an easier thing to rile people up with. Uh, again, nothing new there than for the economic angle, especially since in a lot of these places, Republicans really aren't ready to um, embrace the policies, the economic policies that would help rural America. And you talked about weaponization, and I know that was the subject of your book too, Amy, about how distrusting government. I mean, talk about h- how some of these things have been used strategically. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the book, um, This At War With Government book that I wrote with Doug Harris of Loyola University in Maryland, uh, argues that the really the, the key strategy of the Republican Party, I don't know, starting in the 1960s or so, has been to try to promote distrust in government and use it politically and strategically in a number of different ways, making policy arguments that say about the expansion of healthcare, which we talk about through the book, and winning elections, um, and trying to shape institutional power. And um, I'm leaving one out. You know, it fits with some long traditions in American politics to and you know of course trust in government is not is not always earned uh but there's really the the sh- the shaping of messages around that and and then you have the you know the this real intensification of it with Trump and sort of maga republicans where everything is is a lie that's being told to you whether it's about covid whether it's about elections or and now even about you know January 6 which we all observed with our own eyes i mean not every moment of, but we we know what happened and yet somehow all of it is is false and 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 people are you know being lied to um and you know if you if you have that viewpoint that it's it's all a lie and you can't really trust most people or you can only trust the people in your in your movement that is going to obviously make people even more un, unhappy with what's uh with what's going on and you know the main republican party which has had traditions of at times very uh, some or at least somewhat independent leadership 
and leader, leaders, whether who will work with with people uh, across the aisle in the state or in the, on the national level, you now have a chair and a vice chair who are exponents of a lot of these conspiracy theories. Um, and really, their attitude, it seems to be that that's their path to electoral success. You know, although, you know, their last election, they they did very badly in, in the state. But that's that, that's our, our approach right now as the leaders. I mean, not that I certainly would not say that all main Republicans are like that. You know, there's a lot of legislators in the state legislature who are not. But I want to but follow up with was, Michael on that because you know he was talking before about the knife's edge, and that part of this is being exacerbated because the divisions are so close. And um, I, I wanted to give you a chance to to say about that, Michael. You know how that knife's edge business has made these tactics, like Amy's talking, um, more more attractive, and perhaps more useful to people. Uh, sure. So I think, you know, New England, you know, think about Massachusetts, right, where and compare that to Wisconsin, right? The, poli- the politics really do not play out the way they in Massachusetts, the way they do in Wisconsin. It's because to a great extent, um, if you live in rural Massachusetts, you are you know that you're not about to win statewide office or take over the legislature, right? And and so your sort of staying there reflects um sort of uh letting go of political and coercive ambitions, right? And in the same way that if you go to a place like Idaho or and Boise or Mississippi and Jackson, those cities are pretty blue. But there isn't the same kind of politics there as there are in Wisconsin either, because the people who live in Boise and Jackson know they're not about to win the state either. And so if they're staying, they're staying because of other things and they go about what they're doing. But when you get the few states where that urban rural balance is pretty even, like Georgia or Wisconsin, Michigan, places where there any election is up for grabs. And there's a sense that if the other side wins the election, they're going to try and ruin you. You get this, you know, really angry, hostile politics that you see in about half a dozen states. You used a phrase a minute ago that I want to ask you to explain to the listeners. You said something about coercive ambitions. What do you mean by that? Well, that there's a sense that in um, if your party wins, you're going to um, uh, change the way the losers live and try to keep them from overholding power again, right? And which is sort of the exact opposite of what demo- liberal democracy is supposed to be. But those fears are real on both sides, and they make the stakes of every election very, very high. And they're not really foolish, right? If you look at the Wisconsin election in 2010, that's exactly what Scott Walker did, right? He took a state that had managed, as you grew up there, right? A state that would toggle pretty 
comfortably from Tommy Thompson to, you know, the moderate Democrat. And no one ever felt like the next election was the end of the world, right? And then you get Walker, who uh, destroys labor unions, goes after all his political foes, scorched earth. And suddenly you have uh, a state that hasn't changed much in its urban-rural nature, but now it's every election is for all the marbles. And so that's what happens. Mm. Go ahead, Amy, yeah. Except that in Wisconsin, it can't always be for all the marbles because at least, you know, when state legislative races, you know, the state is so heavily gerrymandered that, you know, you can win comfortably for majority statewide, you know, it's only going to be for the marbles for for statewide races, whether it's, you know. Well, and I mean, that was certainly the the high stakes U.S. Senate race that they had last year and the judicial race, the judicial election that they're facing next month. Um, Maybe, Amy, you could tell our listeners a little bit about those races in case they're not aware. Well, uh, the Senate race uh, ended up reelecting Ron Johnson, who's a Republican and seems to me floated more and more towards MAGA <laughs> in his time, uh, at least when it comes to issues around the 2020 election and well, and the insurrection, too. You know, and he and he won, but uh, more narrowly than the polls had been showing um, after running a a race calling his opponent really radical throwing in certain arguably racist aspects and advertising um and then with this this uh judicial race which you know maine we don't elect state judges uh but they they do elect judges in wisconsin for the and this is for their you know what what's basically their state Supreme Court, uh, you have on a lot of different issues, it, it's very important between the top two candidates, whether it, whether it has to do with being able to change the, the intensive system of gerrymandering that's been in place or, or issues around abortion or, you know, many other kinds of issues. So it is it is a very, very important race. It's uh, one of those things that's probably under the radar for most people nationally, but it's going to make a bit, you know, a big difference. It could make a big difference. And for example, the election laws that will exist in Wisconsin for the next presidential election, which of course that could make a huge difference in terms of who wins the presidential race. Uh, So as Mike is saying, these um, races that might have been sleepy at one time are now for all the marbles as this Supreme Court, Court judge election, you know, has a lot of ramifications down the road. Do you want to comment on that, Mike, before I ask another question? Yeah, yeah no, I think that uh, Wisconsin's also been one of the, is a ground zero state for the Electoral College. And the in. 2020, when the um, there were challenges to the vote in Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Supreme Court um, did not, uh, uh, they rejected them. And so, um, you know, you get to a place in 2024 where the same kind of thing could happen. And so this ju- judicial election is sort of decides which way the court's going to be 4-3. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Amy Freed, the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Michael Podhorzer, Chairman of the Board of the Analyst Institute and Assistant to the President for Strategic Research at the AFL-CIO. Our topic today is If Small States Rule, Why Are They So Angry? This show was pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So, Mike, we talked last month on our show about how small states are overrepresented in the U.S. Senate and thereby in the Electoral College and thereby in the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. And so we talked about how small states have outsized power. Are we making a mistake in thinking small state power, rural state power? Do those actually kind of go together or not so much? So I think what's happened, and and sometimes there's a difference between what's basically the case is that um, in our how how we um, determine uh, power inside the government, there's no question that rural interests are very much overrepresented, um, and that accounts for um, a lot of now it accounts for a lot of the stalemate and about issues that a pretty big majority of Americans, if this were, if it were equal representation, um, would have already enacted, um, including things like preventing the kind of gerrymandering that preserves their power. But it is also true that like, not all power is hard power in the government. There's also economic power, and uh, which, you know, uh, goes directly to cultural power. And in those ways, the they don't get that extra bonus, right? And so, which is why I think the culture is moving so fast, so far away, because that's where profitable consumer markets are right now. Mm-hmm. And you said something in the first part of our show about um, the people in power from let's say some of these small states representations yeah. not being prepared to embrace the policies that would actually cure rural economic ills. Can you say a little bit more about that? Um, sure. I think, you know, that there, a clear example is their uh, resistance to government in general has kept uh, rural America way behind the rest of the world in availability of broadband or other kinds of infrastructure that are routinely provided by national governments all around the world. And yeah, a whole host of things like that. And that because of that kind of ideology, you know, in almost all of the red states, they they those states are rejecting um, Medicaid. And that demonstrably works against the health of the people in those states. But that's that's the political ideology. Well, I mean, that just leads us to, you know, asking this questions like, if rural states rule. No, they do not rule. They have enough power to impede what majorities want, right? And so you take something like choice, like abortion, Right. The because of the way 
uh, there's a rural bias in um, state legislatures. You know, there's just a survey done, 50 state survey done by PRI that found that in no state was there majority support for overruling Roe. Yet in every red state, there's pre-viability abortion bans. How does that happen? It happens because the, of the con- the power imbalance that you're talking about, that rural areas of states get um, a disproportionate number of representatives in state legislatures, and they're more conservative. And the people who vote in those primaries, uh, they do want to ban abortion, and that's how they rule. But overall, they don't have enough. Well, they're getting there with the Supreme Court, but but they don't have enough power to rule. But they also have enough power to get in the way of things that almost overwhelming majorities of Americans would do otherwise. I mean, so we're kind of wondering amongst ourselves, Amy, given that this is a big problem that, you know, there's rural resentment, rural anger, and some of it is actually based in actual difficulties and challenges that those rural areas face. Why aren't we as a country enacting policies that would help fix that? Or are these states so anti-government that they wouldn't take the help if it came? Well, that is the reality, as you know, Mike pointed out, and you know, certainly in some of those states when it comes to Medicaid expansion, the studies all show, you know, you want to preserve rural hospitals, not accepting Medicaid expansion is 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 the wrong way to approach that. Those are the places that are that are losing their rural hospitals at higher rates. And that has a that can have a pretty big impact on people's quality of life. You know, if you if, if it's a even something like uh, losing maternity care in, in rural hospitals, you have to may have to travel a long way when you're in labor, which is by itself at least extremely stressful, if not dangerous in some in some situations. Yeah, I'd say, you know, that just a lot of, you know, you end up having a lot of people in those states who, in those areas who they don't want to have uh, particular government programs. I don't think that's this true, you know, same thing everywhere with every policy. We talked about broadband. I'm seeing rural Maine Republican legislators who are very interested in bringing broadband to rural areas because I think they are listening to the business owners and prospective business owners and in in those sorts of places. It's obviously some variation among uh, rural areas. Mike used the term early on, blue rural. And, you know, I mean, you, you know, you definitely have parts of Maine that they may be rural, but they're not they're not really as conservative as some other rural areas. And Maine, uh, like Vermont, had you know has had people over time move to the state who who came from maybe more urban areas. And whether it's more recent or longer ago, uh, folks, you know, recently more because of the pandemic, perhaps and some back to the landers recently and some back to the landers a, a while ago. So you, you have a certain amount of variation within what, you know, we're all just calling or some of us calling, you know, rural, rural areas. If you look at Maine itself, it's like the differences between the first district and the second district. And those aren't obviously just rural urban differences, but they 
increased over time. Uh, Professor Jim Melcher, Humane Farmington, I have written a few pieces on on Maine politics recently. We wrote uh, for a book on swing states, and definitely there's more variation between the, the districts than there used to be. Used to have pretty similar voting on presidential elections with some gap, but the gap has really opened up. Of course, the last two presidential elections, the second district stood alone in voting for Trump, while the rest of the state and the first district voted for the Democratic candidates. I'm just curious about how this is, you know, between the actual grievances that some of these rural areas face in terms of economic policies and the cultural differences and the things that you've both talked about in terms of the weaponization of messaging. I'm I'm sort of curious about how media disparities and media deserts even may also play into some of this dynamic. Michael, what would you say about that? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the uh, most important factors in the how quickly the kind of um, really hostile polarization in the countries come from the near disappearance of um, organic local media, right? Where um, where there's more of a check on sort of the national craziness, right? Where there's uh, an attention to local politics, right? And it's starving. Um, many, many regions of America from having like, a robust local politics. And, and I mean, some of this is playing out right now on Fox News and the um, rev- revelations about the way they handled the, the yeah. 2020 election. Talk, comment on that, Michael. Yeah, I mean, for listeners who aren't aware, you know, throughout the period in uh, after the 2020 election, the Fox News, the the Fox News hosts were endorsing what Trump was saying about the election being stolen. Um, and at the same time, communicating with each other about how crazy it was, and how ridiculous it was. And we wouldn't even know this well, I mean, obviously, we all intuited that, but that we wouldn't have known it except that they were sued by Dominion voting systems uh, because uh, some of that reporting said that those machines had um, switched votes and things like that. So they had to testify. That's what people get for and believe is news, right? You know, I think one of the really underappreciated reasons why there are fewer and fewer uh Democrats in sort of rural areas and representing and vice versa, is that there's no local media to validate that the Democrat doesn't have horns, right? Mm-hmm. That right, that the only thing they know about him is that he's a Democrat and Tucker Carlson just said blah, blah, blah. Right. But it used to be that there'd be a local paper and the people, you know, Democrat and Republican, would have distinctive personal identities to voters, but there's no way to replicate that anymore. Do you have a comment on the media deserts, Amy? Yeah, I would definitely say that the these national media, you know, have have more of an outsized influence, and people within those 
they they may not hear about even what you know uh, different points of view. So with the Fox Dominion thing, they they just haven't even covered that as a story. I mean, their their media reporter Howard Kurtz at first said he wasn't going to cover it at all, and then the other day spent about four minutes on it, <laughs> which uh, you know, and didn't you know part of it defending Fox on on First Amendment grounds. So. You know, if you're within those kind of media systems, those media ecosystems, then you're really not going to hear that much uh, outside of it. And, you know, but uh, on the other hand, I can think of cases where candidates uh, manage to to do okay, even if there's a lot of advertising against them. And, you know, they're in an area that, that might not seem to work for them because they just do so much work contacting voters. So, for example, the the Senate president, Troy Jackson in Maine, had a, an incredible amount of out-of-state advertising against him um, and, you know, calling him a socialist and a radical and all that sort of thing. And he did, he, he had a close race. He did end up having a close race, but he did end up winning his race in 2022. Now, that's someone who has had uh, a track record knows people, not a new candidate. So maybe that makes it a bit easier. But he also put in a lot of work in connecting with voters. And I think that's really got to be the path. Uh, You know, Democrats are going to do well in those areas is really talking to people extensively, you know, and I can think of other, other candidates, actually, a, a newly elected first-time candidate in, in Maine, another state senator, Mike Tipping, who whose district, um, you know, includes Orono, but then goes north quite a bit. It, it was considered at certain points to be a swing, st- a swing district, but he actually did very well. And he put in a great deal of time door knocking and, and talking to voters about, you know, what they cared about and about policy issues. So, when you don't have that the best news environment <laughs> that we could have, there there is a way still to Get to talk to people and connect to voters. Yeah. yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Amy Freed, the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Michael Podhorser, Chairman of the Board of the Analyst Institute and Assistant to the President for Strategic Research at the AFL-CIO. This program was pre-recorded on March 14th. No listener calls are being taken today. Um, Michael, I want to ask you a question about whether urban elitism is actually a thing. We've talked a little bit about the failings of the ruling parties in some of these rural areas, but like maybe Democrats have messed up a little bit too. Well, more than a little bit, right? Go ahead. No, it's the, what we were just talking about and the policies of the Clinton administration to um, uh, on trade and then, uh, during the Obama administration on, uh, you know, quantitative easing and what was available for rural communities. So no, the saints for rural people right now. We hear a lot about wokeism, you know, these days. I mean, is that a thing? Is there sort of, a um, preaching the gospel of wokeism that people might find objectionable? 
I think that's a real problem. I think that, especially at this moment, take something like defund the police, right? It was not something that any Democratic candidate ran on. It was something that in the summer of 2020, both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders from one end of the party to the other condemned. Um, and Biden even advertised on it. It is an accusation um, that is perennial from Republicans. They just keep rephrasing it that the problem with a different dog whistle that, um, you know, that the sort of underlying racial that 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 provides it its political punch, right? And the problem right now, though, is the way in which a lot of folks who are not part of MAGA Republicans are buying into the idea that that's why uh, Democrats fail. Say a little bit more about that. I'm not sure our leaders. What I mean is that the reasons why Democrats don't win more is not because of um, a insistence on pushing woke policies since they're not pushing woke policies since, you know, Biden mm-hmm. and the state union said fund the police, fund the, I mean, it over and over again, it's a, it's like calling them socialists, right? It isn't true that, you know, Democrats are capitalists. They're not socialists, right? But those are the words that get used to whip up support. And the problem right now is that too many people who are not part of MAGA or Republicans are sort of swallowing that and repeating it. I see. So, so, Amy, I mean, that sort of comes back to the weaponization. Like, how much of this is actually a deeply held belief and sympathy for those values and how much of it is really just being used to win elections. Yeah, it's definitely being used strategically to try to to try to win elections, but you know, that's that space is not always successful, you know. Uh, I mean, you had we had an inmate Paula Page running ads about saying that Janet Mills is showing uh kindergartners videos that the girl could be a boy and a boy could be a girl, which was not really so accurate as a as a statement. Um, but, you know, whatever. I mean, there, there was an attempt to try that. And it, it, it just didn't work. I mean, you know, he, you know, LePage lost by 13, 14 points. So it, it's not always going to be, it's not always going to be effective. It depends on where and when that that it's tried. Um, but there's clearly a constituency for those kinds of claims. Um, and it gets, gets those folks, you know, very upset and perhaps it could affect their tendency to turn out to vote. Um, I don't think it's necessarily convincing that many people what, you know, to vote a particular way, but I think it does serve as a, as something that, can motivate people who who might have been sort of less interested in voting uh, before. Well, I mean, in that context, talk a little bit about Ron DeSantis, Mike, because it may not have worked in Maine, but it seems like it's working in Florida. Oh, definitely, and uh, but it gets, but it's working in the same sense that I was trying, I was explaining earlier that if you are in a state where there, it is essentially the balance of powers towards 
um, more conservative in red interests, and you have substantial uh, white evangelical uh, movement, then that movement controls Republican primaries and in races in districts that have been gerrymandered um, to elect Republicans, that's the election. And so you have a politician in DeSantis who's responsive to the most organized interests in the state uh, in terms of voters. And uh, but even there, you don't see uh, in surveys, at least, the kind of support for the things um, that he's talking about. Right. Just whipping people up. Hmm. So what are we going to do about this? I mean, we're certainly at a moment in our history. Um, how can we heal the breach here? It, you know, if the parties in power are not prepared to enact the policies that are actually going to enrich the lives of our rural voters, and we're just left with, well, I don't know, what are we left with? Amy, what do you think is the answer to get us out of this? Well, <laughs> Big question, Anne. I mean, I, I I do think that you know, in in my me talking about talking to voters, that is a very important sort of sort of thing. And I do see um, people from both parties really trying to go out and and talk to voters. And in a state like Maine, I don't know if it happens so much, and and in other in other states. Um, you know, some some places more than others. Well, Wisconsin, the Democratic Party is very well organized these days under the leadership of Ben Wickler. Is there? But how come they couldn't win there. that Ron Johnson race then? Yeah, they didn't win that one. They won the governorship. You know, no, I, no the race. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. Go ahead, Mike. No, I think that I, the the reason that uh, Barnes didn't. Uh, was defeated in the Senate race was the sort of another consequence of the Supreme Court Citizens United decision, where um, a three billionaires put in eighty million dollars in and as fundamentally racist ad campaign against them, and you know the Bradleys, the Merricks, and I'm forgetting the name of the third one. The U lines, like perhaps. Yeah, the U lines, right. Um, and right, so like that's not democracy, right? And that's not sort of talking about the issues. I mean, think about it. Like in a state the size of Wisconsin, doing that, a uh, few families can come in and spend seventy or eighty million dollars um, to defeat. Yeah, to that's how Ron Johnson is back in the U.S. Senate. You look at, um, you know, one of the interesting things. Then it gets to sort of this idea of rural like not really understanding rural resentment and all and sort of the dominant power it has. When Trump won in 2016 uh, by taking Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, right? The it, and that's when Kathy Kramer and like everybody, oh my God, Democrats are doomed because uh white non-college voters are resentful. They hate Democrats, never going to win again. And it was clear that at that point that the five states that were going to be the fulcrum of presidential politics for the foreseeable future would be those three states and Georgia and Arizona, right? And so since 26, at that time when Trump won, of those five states, four had Republican governors and six of the 10 senators were Republicans, right? Fast forward, even after this midterms, four of the five are governors are now Democrats, 
and nine of the 10 senators are Democrats, right? With the exception of Barnes and Kemp, um, Republicans have lost every statewide race in those five states since Trump won, right? Because the, what I think Amy was saying earlier is it turns out in those states, banning those resentments actually brings out more people to vote against you than to vote for you. Brings out a lot more people, but in those five states, it's brought out more people who don't want to go in that direction. Hmm. So what do you think is the answer, Mike? A new constitution? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, we have a, a constitutional system that has reliably reproduced the same division for 250 years because it um because of its sort of winter path for uh, winner take all election system combined with the amount of sovereignty it gives states um makes it impossible for there to actually be any pluribusuna right so I mean, it, no, I mean, if you were going to suggest amendments to the Constitution, name a couple. <laughs> well, I think the one thing, just going to, um, uh, you know, a Senate that was represent, you know, that you did not have the Senate the way it is, that you had, and you greatly reduce the kind of power that state in states have to stand in the way of what the country is ready to move ahead on. Yeah. Well, we're um, running up to the end of our show, and I do want to give you each a chance to make some parting comments. So we'll go to you first, Amy. Take a minute or so and wrap, wrap it up for us. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think we're going to be able to change our constitution. <laughs> Probably Mike, Mike would uh, agree with that. It's just, it's just such a hard process, you know. Um, so we're stuck with a lot of the things that that we do have, um, and uh, you know. So what what can be done is, I think, really ultimately to make arguments that resonate with those rural voters, make policies that work for them, and make sure that they hear them, whether that's from people going to their doors and talking about it. Um, you know, revitalizing local media in various ways, you know, really what, what, whatever it, ha ha it happens to be. Cause, um, yeah, I think we're stuck with a lot of the institutions that, that we have. Um, uh, so it's just a question of it, ha you know, what can we do to, to, to work with the organizations that exist or, you know, make ones that, that work better and, and reach out. And, and talk to, vote, to voters um, about their lives and their needs. Thanks, Amy. What about you, Mike? What would you be your parting thoughts today? Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's important is that, um, and on this show, we've talked about, um, about all of this conflict in terms of rural urban, but I think that does, um, you know, that is not fair to the substantial number of people who do live in rural America and don't have those views, right? And it like lets off the hook the people who have barely racist or sexist or nationalist views that don't live in rural areas, right? And it makes us think that the problem is kind of where people live rather than what people want and what they think. 
and and when we sort of displace it to something that you know pretends that it's not that this conflict is about a way of life or a place you live instead over very real differences in whether or not we're going to treat everybody as equal citizens whether or not we're going to let people have an equal chance to prosper in this country then we're stuck in a debate that can't be won because we're not talking about what we're actually disagreeing about and so i'm not as hopeful about uh working this through by just talking to voters but i think until we find a way to to confront the problems that we're actually having um we're just going to spin around the way we've been for 250 years I really appreciate the conversation we had. That's our show for today. Thank you to our guests this afternoon. Amy Freed, the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Social Political Science at the University of Maine, and Michael Podhorzer, Chairman of the Board of the Analyst Institute and Assistant to the President for Strategic Research at the AFL-CIO. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. You can subscribe to our podcast at LWVME.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you here next month.